This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching from the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in chapter 26. Our world has never been more confused about the truth and the pressures put on people that claim to follow Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, are returning to more like what the Christians experienced in the first century. It's worth it then to listen to the reminder from Jesus that we find in this passage from Matthew's Gospel, and remember just how easy it is to become spiritually prideful and assume we will never deny Christ. The fact is, we deny Christ quite often. Even as believers, we need help to be a faithful follower. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Follow along with me, Matthew 26, verses 30 to 35. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. Last Sunday we identified a new practice and a noble promise. This week we're going to talk about a notable prediction and a necessary principle. So let's talk about this notable prediction here, verses 30 to 32. Now, verse 30 here gives us stage direction. That's what Matthew is doing here. He tells us that this is a new scene that he's introducing here. Jesus and the disciples sang a hymn, probably the Hallel, from which we get the word Hallelujah. So the team left the upper room. They are no longer in that house. And chronologically, this scene fits in the early stages of the Passion Narrative. After revealing the betrayal from a close friend and instituting the Lord's Supper, Jesus now predicts that the 11 disciples will defect. And he describes that scene by using a Greek word for scandal, translated in your English Bibles by falling away. He says, you will all fall away because of me. Now the reason for that is because according to the prediction of Christ here, in a moment of panic, the disciples would consider their Savior a stumbling block. Associating with Christ would have a tremendous social cost for them. And soon their spiritual pride would damage their allegiance to Christ. That's what Jesus is predicting. Now he points out that the Old Testament had already predicted this event. He paraphrases Zechariah 13 verse 7, which reads, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. In other words, he's saying, even though you will fall away from me, this had already been predicted. The Father is in control of the situation. Human cleverness has nothing to do with this. Human scheming has nothing to do with this. This is part of God's predetermined plan from the foundation of the world. Everyone involved in the passion narrative here, the disciples who will abandon Christ, the Jews and the Romans who would arrest him, are functioning as agents of the redemption plan. Even though, yes, people have the free will to make the decisions. In fact, the Bible tells us to make decisions. We are instructed to make the right decisions. But no human decision 
has the power to trump divine sovereignty. Now, Jesus doesn't want to add to the stress of the disciples here when he says, you will fall away from me. Quite the opposite. Jesus is caring for them. He wants them to know that even their temporary disloyalty has already been predicted. It's something that God predetermined. And again, we see perfect harmony between human free will and the divine sovereignty. Now, his flock will be scattered, he says, but we know that's only temporary, no more than three days, enough for Jesus to go and accomplish redemption, and he would conquer death, he says. After I have been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So he promises them a post-resurrection meeting. So by promising them that there is a post-resurrection meeting in Galilee and scheduling that, he is telling them there's a long-lasting ministry here for all of you, which will lead to a greater regathering of the sheep in the kingdom of heaven. But back to the scene of the abandonment here. I know very few people who respond well to abandonment, which is perhaps the most damaging form of passive aggression. When you abandon someone, you are telling them, I no longer want to be identified with you. Now, we've all experienced that to one degree or another, and some of us have the scars to prove it. For example, a spouse who walked away from you, or a wayward child, or a business partner who violated trust and ran, or a brother in Christ who assassinated your character behind your back. And perhaps some of you were the perpetrator of that passive aggression. But in all of these cases... It feels like the deserter is saying, I am embarrassed to be identified with you. I, I no longer want to be in your life. I no longer want to make public my identification with you. That is what the disciples would do in a matter of hours. But I want you to notice here, church, the contrast between what most of us would have done in response to possible abandonment and what Jesus did. Now, you and I, if we suspected that our associates would have abandoned us, what would we have done? We would have immediately disqualified them and said, well, let me look for other people then who will value me for who I am. But not so with Christ. He assured them that he would not perpetuate the cycle of abandonment. And that is a very powerful lesson here. We have Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows, letting his disciples know, you will abandon me, but I will never abandon you. I will not forsake you. And we know that that's the case because, remember, he prayed for Peter. In the upper room, according to Luke 22, verse 32, he says, Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat, but I pray that your faith will not fail. And what happened afterwards, church, without getting ahead of the story here? Peter's faith did not fail, ultimately. So Jesus is telling them, not only I will never abandon you, but in fact, I will make you the foundation of the church. Your teaching is the foundation of the church. In fact, we are reading now the works of the apostles as the foundation of the church that Jesus has promised to build. So the lesson is very clear, church, and I don't want us to miss the lesson. Jesus turns cowardly defectors into courageous disciples. He turns cowardly defectors into courageous disciples. Imagine what God can do in and through you. And don't tell me that you never turned your back on God because all of us have at one point or another. In fact, perhaps before coming to Christ, perhaps you said no to the gospel a few times before the Holy Spirit grabbed a hold of your heart. And even in a post-conversion, we turn our backs to God all the time. Every time we sin, it's as if we are abandoning Christ. And all of us are tempted to deny our identification with Christ, especially in our culture now. But the eleven had a lot to look forward to, and we have a lot to look forward to. Because in the case of these guys, Christ had a new season of ministry to them. And that season would start soon. But there was yet another part of their training. 
And that part of the training which Peter was particularly blessed with, they would learn in a few hours from that scene. So we talked about a notable prediction. Let's talk about a necessary principle. And that's the message of this scene here that we must understand. Verses 33 through 35. Peter speaks up first, as always the case here. He is the disciple who puts his foot in his mouth. He promised something he would never be able to honor. And and, and think about the audacity of this guy. He says, Jesus, you are wrong. I am not going to abandon you. Imagine the arrogance of that. And not only, he doubles down. He says, these guys will abandon you. But Jesus, you got your scheduling all wrong. I am not going to abandon you. Remember, I am the rock. I am the greatest in the kingdom. You took me to the Mount of Transfiguration. I am your right-hand man. I'm your guy. I'm your sidekick. But Peter never got the metaphor of the vine, apparently, here in John 15, in his need to abide in Christ for lasting fruit. No one can accomplish anything apart from staying in the vine, apart from abiding in the vine that is Jesus Christ. So he quickly reminds the disciple about the danger of spiritual pride. Now, the Jews divided the evening or the night period into four periods. Evening between 6 and 9 p.m., night between 9 p.m. and 12 a.m., then rooster crow time, we can call it, between 12 and 3 a.m., and then dawn between 3 and 6 a.m. What Jesus is telling Peter is this, dude, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crow, before that period is over. Don't be arrogant. Don't be proud. Without me, you can do nothing. The disciple was so consumed with arrogance here, so full of himself, that he didn't realize the foolishness of contradicting Jesus. In church, I suspect that sometimes we do that. We tell, no, Jesus, you're wrong. We say, Jesus, I know that that's your plan for my life, but I got something better. I have a better plan. And in my, quote-unquote, better plan than God's, I am at the center of the universe. And by the way, I don't want any suffering. And I want everybody serving me. And we complain to God and say, why is this happening? We are frustrated when we experience the humbling effects of tragedy, the humbling power of faith testing. And we say, Lord, you got this wrong. Your timing is wrong. You're late on this or you're early. And we're acting just like Peter. But thank God that Jesus doesn't abandon us, doesn't zap us from heaven. Now, it's hard to imagine a more disastrous example of spiritual pride. And yet, we do this all the time. We may not articulate it like Peter does here, but in our hearts, sometimes we think like that. And again, we say, Lord, you are so wrong. This is not the proper time for me to be going through this. This whole idea that Peter exemplifies here for us tells us that uh, aided by human strength, not even the apostles, the mighty apostles, can walk in faithfulness or demonstrate loyalty to Christ. Apart from him, no one can accomplish anything of spiritual value. Again, Because he is the vine, John 15, verse 5. Now, you can accomplish many things because of the power that God has given you, the the, the intelligence that you have, the abilities that you have, but you will accomplish nothing of spiritual value. And we must understand that, otherwise we will fall because of spiritual pride. In fact, self-reliance disqualifies people for Christian service. Did you know that? Self-reliance will disqualify us from Christian service. And paradoxically, when you think you lack the resources to accomplish what God wants you to accomplish, then you're on your way to accomplishing great things to God. When you realize, just like Paul, when I am weak, then I'm strong, then you're ready to be used by God. When you say, Lord, I can't believe you're using a wretch like me to accomplish your mighty plans, then you're on your way of being mightily used of God. 
But sometimes the opposite is true too. When we say, Lord, I can't believe you're using him or her. I can't believe you're not recruiting me for this. I can't believe they are the ones getting the promotion or whatever the case is. And I have met people who believe they are God's greatest gift to the church. I have met people who believe they are the fourth person of the Trinity. They say, how come you're not using me? Well, demonstrate a little bit more humility. And that's a start. Now, pastors and ministry leaders are specifically vulnerable to spiritual pride. I know that from experience and from observance. We somehow think our title or position shields us from the temptation of pride or automatically puts us above everyone else. That's what Peter thought. Peter thought he was above all of the disciples. He thought, well, there's them and there's me. I am in a category on my own here because I am the rock. I am the greatest in the kingdom. Now, pastors and ministry leaders are not immune to that. We can't forget that the enemy of our souls here is involved in this scene here. Even though Satan is not mentioned here by name. And we know that every time a believer in Christ is tempted to be proud, Satan is involved. Not personally, because first of all, Satan is not omnipresent. Okay, let's get that out of the way. Satan cannot be everywhere at the same time. Omnipresence is an attribute that belongs only to God. Remember, Satan is a created being. He can't read your mind either. The reason why Satan is so effective in tempting people is not because he knows what you're thinking, but Satan has been observing humanity for all of this time, since, since Genesis 3. We are the most predictable kind in creation. Did you know that? So it's easy to predict how we're going to fall into temptation. Now, that's the strategy that Satan used when he tempted Christ in the wilderness. We remember in Matthew 4, he tried to get Jesus to operate independently from the Father. That's what the temptation was all about. The first round, he suggested that Jesus get ahead of divine providence and say, well, turn these stones into bread. In other words, don't trust God. Use your power. Do a trick to satisfy me. Do a magic trick for me here, Jesus. Prove your identity. And not by coincidence, this temptation happened right after the Father affirmed the Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So Satan came, oh, are you really the Son of God? Act independently of the Father and prove to me that you are the Son of God. But in the second round, Satan tempted Jesus to question the Father's faithfulness. Well, if you throw yourself from this pinnacle here, he will rescue you. Now, if he had listened to the devil, Christ would have acted presumptuously. Now, in the third round, in a last-ditch effort, the enemy of our souls and the enemy of Christ here wanted to get Jesus to commit idolatry. Bow down to me and worship me, and I'll give you the kingdoms, which, by the way, they're already yours. Now, Satan failed miserably in the wilderness in tempting Christ. It's not hard to see why he wanted to sift Peter like we, like Jesus says here. Because he failed so miserably in tempting Christ, his plan B was to go after his followers. I mean, that's it's the oldest trick in the book. He failed to get Jesus to sin, so let me go after his followers and attack them. And remember, because if you are a believer in Christ, the Bible says you are in him, you are so united with Jesus that every attack on you is an attack on Jesus. So what has Satan been doing for the last couple of thousand years? Tempting followers of Christ to commit sin. Evidently then, in his perfect wisdom, Jesus allowed Satan limited access to Peter's pride. Remember, Satan doesn't operate aside from divine control. He is on a leash. Remember, he only does what God allows him to do to fulfill his divine purposes. And Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, in praying for Peter, the whole trinity then allowed Satan to have access to Peter for a moment. Now, because Satan fell to this type of iniquity, spiritual pride, it's not hard to see why he would try to get people to commit the same sin. You remember, Lucifer was created originally as an angel, 
as a cherub of light, the Bible says. And the Bible also says that iniquity was found in him and he said in his heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That's in Isaiah 14 verses 13 through 14. And here it is. The goal that Satan has from the beginning. To be like the most high. That's the sin of pride. The sin of arrogance. Spiritual pride. And obviously then, we conclude that he wants to do the same thing with you and me. He wants us to commit the same sin. And therefore, that's what we battle with daily. Now, like I said, Satan doesn't personally tempt people all the time because he can only be at one place at a time. But he has a very effective kingdom. He's a very effective communication network here. And therefore, lower-ranking demons are dispatched to do the tempting. For example, in my world, Satan may send a, a demon to tempt me like this. You have been preaching every Sunday for the past five years, at least here at Grace Baptist Church. You have a system that works. Why do you need to pray? Why do you need to prepare? You know, put this thing in autopilot. Give the people of Grace Baptist more of you and less of Jesus. Use your ability to speak in public to get them to admire you. See, that's the temptation. And for you, it might be something like this. Why do you need the Bible to determine your worldview? Come up with your own system. Come up with your own rule of faith and practice. Determine your own truth. That's what the world does anyway. Get with the times. Embrace the world. Love the world. Follow your, your own impulses. And do it with pride. Isn't that what our society tells our young people? Follow your own impulses. In fact, we'll help you. That's the temptation of our time. Most of our temptations appeal to our pride, which permeates our society. According to John, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, 1 John 2.16. So every temptation that you and I face, church, fall into one of these categories, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And we are constantly tempted to act independently of God, to say like Peter, I will never commit that horrendous sin. Other people might. But I am never going to do that, Lord. Don't you remember who you're dealing with here? In church, how did Jesus defeat the temptation then in the wilderness? How did he defeat Satan? The Word of God. He memorized Scripture and he told the devil, well, the Word of God says, it is written. So therefore, church, if we're called upon to imitate Christ, what is the best strategy for you and for me to deal with the temptation to be prideful? We memorize the Word of God. We internalize the Word of God. We quote the Word of God. We read it and we study it. Paul instructs Timothy, give attention to the public reading of the Word of God. That's what we do here every Sunday. We, we read the Word of God publicly and then we talk about what the Word of God means. But again, in verse 35 here of this scene, we see Peter insisting in his audacity and contradicting, or trying to contradict Christ again. And the other disciples follow him and swear total allegiance. There is no reason to believe, church, that that was not what they intended to do. They intended to never abandon Christ. And you and I have the same desire. We don't want to deny affiliation with Christ publicly. We don't want to deny biblical values in the public square. There's no question about that. But it's easy to do that here. It's easy to say that in a safe environment of our flock here in a church. It, just like it was easy for them to vow perfect devotion when the enemy is nowhere in sight. Now, it's another thing, it's another story to affirm identification with Christ with a gun on your head or strapped in a guillotine or on the way to the gallows or on your way to a Roman arena or in an American courtroom or in the public square where the social cost is greater than ever in our country. Now, for my young folks here, 
Did you know that there was a time in this country when identification with Christ was good for business? That you would put it on your business card, you know, I'm a deacon in the local church. People respected you more because of that. Those days are gone. Praise God. Because the more we are pushed to the margins, the better God will accomplish His purpose in you and in me. Why? Because He purifies His church. Cultural Christianity is out, has been out for at least a couple of decades now. True biblical Christianity is in. And the more we are called upon to stand firm for the gospel, the greater God's ability to use us. Now, none of us, again, plan on denying Christ, but we should never assume that we will never do it. So let's use that fear, the healthy fear of abandoning Him, painfully aware of our ability to do so, to drive us to our knees and ask, Lord, please equip me to stand firm when I am bullied into embracing an ungodly view of marriage. When I'm bullied of embracing an ungodly view of human sexuality or life in the womb. And we say, Father, equip me to endure the mockery and the insults when people call me names for holding Christ's view of manhood and womanhood. Help me speak the truth respectfully but unwaveringly. And to think that we are capable of representing Jesus accurately in a morally bankrupt culture without humility is foolish. So the necessary principle here from this scene that we must learn and assimilate is this. Never underestimate your ability to join the sinful crowd. Never underestimate your ability to abandon Christ and join the rest of them. Let's not assume everyone will sin, but I will never do that. Instead, let's say, Lord, please keep me from doing that. Have mercy on me, the sinner. Now, Peter and the other disciples learned that lesson very clearly here, which confirms what we already knew, that the Father answered Jesus' prayer for Peter, that Peter's faith will not fail. And by the way, the Father always answers the prayers of the Son. Why? Because the Son always prays in accordance with the Father's will. No, that's not the case for you and for me, because we pray to God, and we may not articulate it, but sometimes we pray to God all asking about ourselves, saying, Lord, please make me the greatest person that ever lived. Meet all my wants and my desires. That is why the Bible says we need the assistance of the Holy Spirit that prays for us, intercedes for us. So the father answered the prayer from the son that Peter's faith not fail, and that happened later on. Ultimately, he was restored. See, the disciples stumbled, but God lifted him out of the mire and set his feet on the rock. Psalms 40, verse 2. Public identification with Christ no longer resulted in a stumbling block, but became a source of honor. Because not too long after the prediction of the denial here, along with his fellow apostles, Peter was arrested, he was flogged, and he was ordered not to speak the name of Christ anymore. And he reacted, not by denying Jesus, but by rejoicing that God considered him worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus, Acts 5, verse 41. So it is an honor to suffer for the name of Christ. That is our perspective that we must embrace. It's an honor to be insulted for the sake of Christ. It is an honor to be persecuted for the sake of Christ. Now, you don't have to force persecution. Just be faithful to your calling, and the world will hate you automatically. And when that happens, you consider that God is putting you in a very special category of people who are worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. So if you ever suffered false accusations, injustice, persecution, or mockery because of public identification with Christ, you belong to the community of worthy ones. But Scripture alerts us. This honorable position only happens to the lowly in heart, not with the spiritually proud. 
the lowly in heart, the humble in heart. Church, write this down. God will never recruit. He will never bless a proud person. You understand that? He will never recruit for service, and he will never bless someone who is proud in his or her heart because the Bible says clearly he resists the proud. So what's the lesson for us? We go lower. We say, Lord, please, let me go lower. Is there a way for me to go lower here? Because you and I already think too highly of ourselves. And the Bible says we shouldn't be doing that. If the Bible instructs us to not think too highly of ourselves, it's because God already knows that it's our tendency to think of ourselves way higher than we should. So we go lower. And we ask the Lord, Lord, please keep me from ever dishonoring your name. So that's the notable prediction followed by the necessary principle that we learn here from this scene. The conclusion of the denial narrative does not happen until the end of the chapter. We know the story that Peter did deny Christ three times. But the truth of the matter is in, in history, many people like Peter denied Christ when faced with persecution. But the good news is this, church. Christ loves to restore fallen believers. He did this with Peter. He wants to do the same with you. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth with Grace.